Welcome to the Time Machine. Experience the cancer journey through the eyes of the traveler. Welcome back to the Time Machine. Join us as Marissa Van Atta shares with us her journey from driven student athlete chasing success on the court to a young woman in the fight for her life. Well, what a pleasure to have you. So I guess, you know, Marissa, welcome to the Time Machine officially. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear more um, about your journey. We got to talk on the phone a little bit and got acquainted with, with your cancer journey. So I uh, would love to, to hear, you know, how that journey started for you, diagnosis and then treatment and, you know, kind of walk us through your journey and your travels as a cancer survivor. Mm-hmm. So when, when did, when did you get the first, um, inclination that something was going on? Um, it's hard to say cause I'd been sick for, I'd probably eight years prior to my diagnosis and that started back in high school. Um, more like my sophomore year of high school, I just kind of noticing my body was for whatever reason, just more tired than it normally should have been. And being at that point, 16, 17, you wouldn't think that you should be that tired, but I just was. And so I was always sleeping all the time. And, you know, that's kind of normal, I guess, for a teenager. And then getting into, I'd always just kind of get little colds here and there. I struggled with allergies and different things like that. Um, Going into my senior year of high school is when things really started to get um, a little bit more severe. I had mono. I had uh, enlarged uh, liver and spleen. Um, I should have been playing basketball one game. (laughs) Um, But I knew there was recruiters there, and it was just I, I wanted to go. I wanted to play college basketball, and I hadn't really done a good job with doing much for um, preparing for recruiting. So I was like, I was kind of really nervous, and so I just kept pushing through. And when times when I probably should have sat down and maybe stepped away from a sport, I kept going. I was always a three-sport, four-sport kind of girl growing up. I played everything from soccer, basketball. I did... Um, track a little bit. I really was in tennis a lot younger, but horses were kind of more my uh, thing. And so I was always doing something. There was uh, never really a free moment to rest. So I kind of understand why my body was so tired coming up to high school. And especially as you get more competitive, which I was doing traveling soccer and basketball. I was on a great team that got to go to uh, Denmark and Sweden going into high school for soccer. And that was a really unique unique experience but just the caliber and the time the commitment to everything like that it can really do a lot to your body over the years so um there are great experiences but um yeah I just kind of going into college it got more uh more pronounced I was just getting sick more often and uh it's a full-time job you're there nine months you go from a preseason, which is all lifting and conditioning it's it's really 
tough on your body. There were days where you just, you needed to keep pushing through. And, um, it really, in uh, hindsight, 2020, it really prepared me for my cancer journey. I would, looking back now, it's like, yeah, getting through those days, those are, those are easy peasy compared to what you end up going through. But even then, um, you can always find the strength, but getting a little off topic here, I guess. No, that's great. That's great to know. Um, yeah, no, just from where I didn't really know when something was wrong. I knew something was always wrong, but as far as pinpointing when I thought I had cancer, I don't know because everything in those last four or five years um, prior to my diagnosis just kind of, they seemed normal to me. Um, everything, I, from my freshman year of college, it was, it was good. Then it got a little worse and progressively it just got worse and worse. And eventually it's to the point where I didn't remember, I didn't really know who I was as a person. I, I fought a lot with depression and different things like that. Um, and when you're where I was at school at that time, I played basketball at MSUB and it was a huge time commitment and um, we we're always flying everywhere. And for me, <laughs> if you know who I am, I have terrible anxiety with flying mm. and just traveling in general. And so I don't think that type of stress helped my body at all. And then add on that you're basically you're playing two games a week and uh, it's just it's a lot to put on your body. So uh, my diagnosis was in 2017. Uh, it was September. Uh, I transferred to Rocky during that summer and I, I, I'm really glad I did. They're a great, um, great place to be. My mom ended up working there a long time ago and kind of helped uh, save the school. So it was like coming home and she was so happy to see me go to Rocky. And so it was just a great atmosphere to, for me to be, especially going through my cancer journey. They were really supportive through all of that. But as far as the girls, um, they were awesome too. But yeah, I when I was diagnosed, uh, everything seemed normal for me because back earlier that year at, when I had just finished my season at MSUB, I'd gone to um, a doctor and she diagnosed me with what she called overtraining syndrome. Mm. And so everything that she said that I was experiencing, like heart palpitations, uh, shortness of breath, I had pneumonia, I had all sorts of sinus infections, just things that you really don't need to be dealing with when you're playing basketball. And it just being sick was a normal thing for me during a game. I don't can't. I can count more times that I was sick than I was actually ever well. But with that being said, um, overtraining syndrome really kind of made me not think of cancer as being a factor. So when I took my time off, I she requested that I take at least four or five months off. So I did. I took my postseason off at MSUB and I, she said just to get away from a sport. I, For me to get away from a sport, I had never done that in all my years of ever since I, I was young. So that was really tough for me to try to just completely separate myself and my team. And it was very difficult and uh, took the summer and then how things went down, they did. But then I ended up transferring to Rocky 
And coming back, I was telling Coach Keller, I said, oh, I'm feeling great. I haven't felt this great in years. And that was the honest to God truth. I, in August, I had never felt as good as I had then, which is strange. You think, okay, I overtraining syndrome must be cured. Who knows? Mm. And uh, cancer at that point really wasn't anywhere on the radar. I had my last checkup and hindsight 2020, I should have probably gone a, uh, a blood test, but I didn't. And so got the clear bill of health for my doctor and we went on and uh, everything with preseason, if you, when you, if you ever been in a sport or basketball in general, it's a lot of running. Mm-hmm. And I would say we did more running that preseason than we did more playing. And so it was a very not as contact intensive preseason um, and more lifting and different things. So when I started getting bruises and different things, it, it was a little strange, but for me, I just, I kind of, I shrugged my shoulder and was like, oh, it is what it is. You never know where you get a bruise. And I'm the type of person I can just stub my toe and it's bruised or yep. it's, I, that's just who I am. And especially being fair skinned, <laughs> they show up really yeah. easily. But then it got to the point where, um, it was just, it was really bad. And my coach even pulled me in and he said, are you, is everything okay? Like, is, is there's something we should know about? And I said, no, no, it's not nothing there. It's just, it's who I am as a person. And he said, well, you need to be eating more. And I said, you should see how much I eat. I probably eat my parents out of house and home. I, I graze all the time. So eating wasn't a thing, but I was definitely losing more weight than normal. And uh, each week got progressively worse. And it, the thing is, is transferring from a school down the road to this other school and you played against those girls Mm. all those years you have something to almost I wouldn't say prove but for me being a competitive person you don't want to just slack off and so I was always trying to be up front and pushing myself harder and harder and each week got harder as far as conditioning but also with my body I started noticing things that were just totally out of the ordinary but not all the way. Um, but my legs started to be the first thing I really noticed. They would go completely numb, start through my, my feet. So I was thinking, okay, it must be my shoes. Me Mm -hmm. as an athlete, always coming and trying to make an excuse or, uh, not excuse, but just kind of trying to figure out what's going on. It's just, you're always in that process of trying to problem solve. Okay, this is it. We can solve this here. And so I tried different shoes. I um, tried stretching more, thinking maybe that was it. It would just get worse. And so I would drink more water or I'd I'd have electrolytes and different things. Wasn't working. I just kind of shrugged it off. I was like, okay, I guess maybe it's overtraining syndrome. Still not all the way gone. So that's playing in the back of my head the whole time. And then I would hear the girls on the sideline with me and they're just... They're complaining about their legs hurting and all these different things. I'm like, gosh, did I really forget how difficult preseason is? And thinking back, like, yeah, I guess it was always tough, but just for whatever reason, it just, I took this much time off. This must really what out of shape means. And so that's what was always processing through my head and what their pain, what they were experiencing. I was like, okay, I'm experiencing that too. 
and it just got worse. Like my lungs would hurt and burn and I had pounding headaches, but every time I'd just come home and I would just, I'd be exhausted. I couldn't do anything and homework was extremely difficult to ever do. Um, when you're exhausted, it's just, you can't do it. And so my parents knew something was up. And so we kept going and uh, trying different doctors and it was probably the second week of September. I got sick with the cold, Mm. (laughs) the flu. And so I went into the nurse practitioner at Rocky and she said, you should really go see, um, a non oncologist, but a, a cardiac doctor because she thought I had endro, uh, I can't even think of it, but it was some sort of heart yes. problem and just with how my heart was reacting. And so we pursued it and we went there. I got the stress test done. They did all the ultrasounds in my heart and they're like, oh, nope, you're fine. And <laughs> I would show my bruises and I had the petechia, which are those little red dots. Yes. It looks like that awful rash everywhere. Yep. And they're just like, oh, no, that's just that's your sport. And I said, well, we're not playing like we have open gyms maybe once or twice a week that I guess, yeah, maybe, but it's not like we're bashing on each other every single day. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're fine. And went to the emergency room a couple times. And my mom, I remember, begged for a blood test. And the one guy's, oh, no, that's not what it is. It's just mono. And we're like, okay. And so our last stop was we were trying to get into my allergy doctor. And she was booked up until October. And my mom just had this thought. She's like, no, we, we can't wait that long. And thank goodness we didn't. So we went to a completely brand new doctor. This doctor had no idea of my history, like mm. nothing. And so it was just a clean slate there. He put me through all the allergy tests. I got tested for that. And then he was like, let's do one more test. And he did the blood test and he had brought it up to my mom when I wasn't there. And she just was, she was bewildered. She was like, no, that couldn't be it. And He's like, I really do think that's probably what it is. And sure enough, the next day we had, we have these individual practices. And so my group was going at, I think it was seven or 8 a.m. and before class. And it was just, it was tough. It was tough to get out of bed that morning and tough to get there. And we were doing just simple shooting drills and it just, I could not get the energy to just move. And for me not to be able to move is just kind of, strange or not have energy because people have preferred it's like I'm an energizer bunny I'm always going and I am and so after that individual practice went to the locker room and I just I normally went home before my class and I couldn't make it home and so I just slept in the locker room and then I walked in to my equine class and I was just sitting there and <laughs> kind of silly but I was playing with my hair and I was like ah it was really bugging me that day and all girls I think can attest to it there's some days where they're just like I need to shave my head it's just my hair is not doing it so that was going through my head and of course like shortly after I did but um my mom get calls me and so I just kind of let it go to voicemail and I text her, I'm like, I'm in class, and she just keeps calling and calling. I'm like, okay, something's seriously up. And so I just excuse myself from my class, and 
um, she is just crying and crying. She's like, you need to go get your stuff and meet me. I'm, I'm right out front. Like I'll pick you up. And she, of course, mother instinct, she's come and wants to carry me everywhere. I'm like, mom, I'm so much bigger than you. This is not, <laughs> you cannot carry me to the car and carry me to the hospital. Like I can do this, whatever it is. And so we get there and, um, on the way, I just know something's wrong. And, uh, all the times I've gone to the emergency room, it's usually wait there for a little bit. And it's like the doctors had called and they're all ready. So I literally walk in and they're like, okay, we're here. Put the wristband on and walk back. And my brother and dad showed up and then, um, we walked, we we're in the, uh, waiting, uh, the room and the nurses came in, they took me for a bone marrow biopsy. And so, and in, interesting enough, one of the girls who was in there I'd went to school with, so it was kind of comforting there, but uh, that was an experience I never thought I would ever have to go through. And for me, still sitting there, I'm like, I don't know why I'd be getting a bone marrow biopsy. Cancer was not in the works. I was like, okay, well, I knew something serious. But I thought maybe it was just a really serious infection. And then went, got admitted. Um, my coaches and some of the girls came up and saw me and friends and hanging out in the hospital room. And it was at the next morning at like 5.30 in the morning was when the doctor came in and kind of just said, hey, this is what it is. And you're going to have to go to Denver and start treatment. And I know my parents were just... What did he say it was? He said it was AML, leukemia. Okay. And I had, they needed to do further testing as far as like my mutations. And that was a long process. That was a long way to even find out what those were. But uh, they wanted me to be down there as soon as possible. And so they're contemplating about me just driving down there and I got a transfusion of platelets, which then I had <laughs> a really gnarly reaction. It was, I remember the nurse who was infusing me, she said, all right, if you feel any sort of like itch or tickle, let me know. And me, it's just, I, I felt something. I was like, oh no, that can't be, that's not it. And then it just, it hit me just like that. And my throat started swelling and I started like going in and out of consciousness and if you've ever been a watched Grey's Anatomy, which I know, all I've never watched that. <laughs> My wife may have watched it. Yeah, a lot. I may have seen it yeah. before. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Okay. Yes. yes I'm out of it. I've, I, I know. <laughs> I have seen it. I, it's okay. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Oh, shh, your secret's shh. safe with me. <laughs> but yeah, so it was honestly like an episode of Grey's where they're calling the crash card, and there were tons and tons of nurses and different types of people in their work and I mean it was kind of it was weird and I'm the person who I don't really like that kind of attention and I'm like I'm I'm I usually say I'm fine like go to a trainer like are you okay like take a gnarly hit or different things it's like nope I'm fine I'm fine yeah. and so for me to be just very helpless in the situation was kind of not necessarily humbling, but it was just, it was eye-opening. Um, it was a new experience and really started to put things into perspective. And then after that happened, they decided that I needed to be flown down there. 
I probably really didn't need to, but that was their decision and they said I go, then they basically when a doctor says jump, you just ask how high. And so uh, you should ask more questions. But in this moment, my parents really were just like, okay, whatever we have to do to save her life, we're going to do it. So I was flown down to Denver and uh, each day we kind of learned a little bit more. And um, I, after my diagnosis, it was a Thursday and they said my platelet's when I they did the blood test the day before, we're at 19. So that was extremely low, especially when you're trying to play a sport. Yes. And 19,000. Yep. Yes. Yep. I just always yeah. cut it off. Yeah, at me too. Yep. Yes. It's and so, f- yeah. So, what from what I understand, 150,000 to 450,000 is kind of the normal range. Yep. Anything under 75,000 is critical or under 50,000 is critical. Yeah. It's... And so 19,000 is. Yep. Way super, super critical though. Yeah. So whenever I'd have to go in throughout my treatment, it was, we usually try to manage it around 30. Um, or that was usually when I would go in for a transfusion. So yeah, 19 was extremely low. And I think, um, cause I didn't get all the platelets when I was down yep. there. Uh, so I think I, there were some points where I got to even five, which but at least at that point, I wasn't playing a sport. So they had said the doctors were, with my platelets being that low, and if I had gone and played open gym or done something, the risk of internal bleeding was extremely high. Yes. Which makes it perfect sense just with how easily I bruised. Yes. And it's kind of scary because the week before, who knows where my platelets were at, but I got hit in the head. One of the girls and I, we collided. It's just, it's part of the sport and if that would have been a week later who knows and so especially when you're complaining about different things it might not be the one thing doctors are immediately looking towards until it's too late so that was kind of um eye-opening too and then also that my bone marrow was 90 percent um over 90 percent full of uh, cancer cells so i was basically in stage four and so I've truthfully, uh, I was very, very lucky with everything. I, I didn't have much time and I didn't know that. Yeah. And so looking back, it's like I took a lot of things for granted. And so I'm really blessed. I had a second chance basically. So <clears throat> I had a lot of time to think when I was down in Denver. There were, I was there for a little over 30 days. I think it might have been 35, but it's as close to a prison as you kind of can get um, because especially in the oncology unit, you're supposed to just basically stay in your room. If you go outside your room, at least down in Denver, you mask up, you put gloves on, you have a suit on and you just, it was a little rectangle and it took, I think it was 26 laps, maybe a little bit more than that equaled one mile. And I, you have your transfusion thing with all your chemo, which his name was Robbie, Robbie, the robot. And my brothers and I had to name something. And so Robbie and I would go cruise around (laughs) the halls and I'd be doing lunges and just how I am as a person. Even going down there and getting diagnosed with cancer, I I still made an effort to try to stay active and not just for my own physical health, but more for my mental health, because there's only so much you can do 
and especially the way everything happened. My car was still at school when I was getting flown down there. My, I had no clothes basically. My parents ran home and just started throwing things in a bag. So I felt really discombobulated at mm-hmm. first and slowly pieces started to come together and um, then people were very generous and were sending all sorts of care packages and gifts and uh, so it made things a little bit better and then my one brother from Portland flew in and he got an Airbnb and so he stayed down there for the last few weeks and then my dad and brother would drive back and forth to from Billings to Denver so it was nice that I was very uh, surrounded by my family, and that was nice, especially because that first month was really difficult. I ended up getting an ulcer, and I had a GI and tra- uh, GI tract infection. So it was just all these different things just weren't helping for my recovery. I also got infections with all my ports, mm-hmm. and I had the ports that are in my arm at that point. So when I went in for my second bone marrow biopsy... I I don't know, you're in a hospital, you'd think some people would use common sense, but the girl who was in working around my port, I don't know what she was thinking, but she was wiping her nose, mm-hmm. not using gloves, and sure enough, I ended up getting an infection. And so that really set me back a little bit, especially after all the uh, chemo and different things. That first induction chemo is really, it's, an, it's a gnarly one. I say it's the Kool-Aid because it's the pink version and you have the, it was the, it ran for 24 hours for seven days. And, and that was when I kind of first started noticing all the symptoms. And before that point, we had cut my hair and we're saving it because we're thinking, oh, well, I could make a wig out of it because it was long enough. It was down to the middle of my back, maybe a little longer. So it was super long. And then... It, you started just waking up and your head would really hurt and it just kind of in the shower or you're just brushing your hair and so we just ended up shaving it and with all that that was an experience and humbling and a different side I'd always felt in my head I'm like oh I have all these lumps and you think that it's just you're gonna look really weird bald and it was it was different but it was it was it was kind of cool to see it that way. <laughs> In all honesty, I'm not going to lie. It's like, I will i don't know if I'll ever have that experience again or who knows, but knock on wood. But uh, yeah, it's just... What was the hardest symptoms when you, when, so when you got there and you started to get your first chemo treatment, the Kool-Aid, what was, you know, what was the kind of the first thing you noticed as a symptom um, I really right. lucked out as far as not having much nausea. Okay. So that was really good. Um, I start, obviously like started getting like the, the stomach infection and the ulcer. So that was kind of more of the thing, but it was actually my head hurting okay. was, so it wasn't like a headache. It was just really sensitive. Hmm. And so I noticed that throughout the rest of my treatments. So I had this innate sense. I was like, all right, I'm not going to touch my head. I'm not going to scratch it I'm gonna do the best I can to not touch my head and my hair grew back really fast throughout the rest of my treatment which was amazing so I don't know maybe if that was something but that was the thing I noticed most it was really painful to like put your head on a pillow and then just tired you just felt really weak and then like you were talking earlier about kind of the fog you can kind of Mm -hmm. it was starting to come in 
But I, one thing I was really, really adamant about was drinking a ton of water. I just, I would go through gallons of water a day because you had to write how much you, your Mm -hmm. intake was and your outtake. And I was probably going to the bathroom three or four times an hour, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. It just depends. But I just didn't want that poison sitting in my body. And it's not that it's a poison because it was making me better, but then on the same token, it also can harm other things. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big thing. And so I think that kind of helped relieve some of my symptoms. And then one thing that really started to happen was I actually ended up losing vision. And it wasn't just from the chemo. They weren't entirely sure. But I think maybe part of it might have come from that when I hit my head mm. that week before. But what happened is I got bleeding behind my eyes. And so it was slow. Don said of it was very slow. But I knew something was wrong because I would just see these weird specks. And so I told them and they were like, oh, yeah, some of the medications have these side effects. And we were just like, okay. And so they would try to change things. And it just got to the point where all I could see was under my eyes and a little bit out here. But then anything in front, I was completely blind. And so that was another thing in itself. They could not get someone in, a specialist, and it it was a really big battle because your eyes are one of your more important things, if not one of the most important things. Granted, you can, people do it all the time, but you want to try your best to save them if you can. Absolutely. We were trying, and they couldn't get a specialist in there because they didn't have hospital privileges, and so... Um, they got a doctor up there, but it wasn't her specialty. And how long was this process when you first, when you started to lose the vision it, to when you, when, when a specialist actually came in? Um, probably like over a week. In that time, what, uh, you know, like when you lay your head down to go to sleep, you know, what were your thoughts internally about your sight? You know, did you have, you know, I would assume it would be. You, I don't want to assume. Did you have fears? Did you oh, have yeah. thoughts of okay, this I may wake up and not see? Yep. Okay. Yep. What was that like? Um, it was scary, but then again, like with everything else, I was in honestly throughout the whole process in a constant state of peace. I kept praying. That was the biggest thing. I kept trying to envision, try not to think of the negative. Like, of course, that's always back in the back of your mind. Like, what if, what if, what mm-hmm. if I can't see ever again? Yes. And so I, it was a fear, but then I just tried to lay down at night. I tried, we tried to be as calm and peaceful about it. Um, we'd listen to just really relaxing music. My mom would rub my feet, just do different things to keep my mind off of that. Yes. Or my brothers would watch movies with me and different things, but I would just pray. And then I would pray and envision just like a healing light helping my entire body. Starting from my toes all the way up to my head. And um, yeah, that that's kind of how I was able to get through that. And from the time when it started, it was probably the first week of October. I didn't really regain my vision until probably 
January or February. So how long was it, say again, from when to when? Probably October 1st was when I really started noticing my vision going away. And then I didn't get it back until probably January or February. And even then, I still had issues after that. And so when I came back to Billings in the end of October, we went and saw a specialist. And I went and saw her uh, once a month, basically, for a while. And we signed up to do a surgery. And I was going to get a surgery done to relieve all the blood, but it slowly started kind of dissipating. And so she wasn't as concerned, but, uh, yeah, for a while there, I was scheduled to go get. And anything like that with, you know, where you know, oh, yeah. your platelet levels, everything is, what can be routine stuff is now way riskier. Oh yeah. Like, you know that I know that. And well, and other people may not realize that like just for yep. me to walk outside was, could be detrimental you don't know like as far as when in the hospital for one thing it's they try to keep it sanitary but it's not like there's it's a place where sick people go Mm -hmm. and then same thing like you go to a grocery store people are hacking and coughing it's just there everything becomes very dangerous to you that's why you wear the mask not because (laughs) Because people stay away from you because they think you're the, <laughs> you're one, the one that's, that's And you're like, no, it's you. I need yeah. you to stay away from me. And that's the thing. It's kind of like how my dad taught me when I was growing up. He's like, as far as driving, he said, I know you're a great driver, but it's the other people I'm worried about. Yep. And it's the same thing with being yep. sick. It's the other people I'm more concerned about. Did they wash their hands? Do How do they prepare their food? Different things. What mm-hmm. are their personal hygiene habits? Um you really don't start to think about those things until maybe you're sick or until your immune system's compromised. Yeah, and it's a scary thing because something as simple as the common cold mm-hmm. could just yep. take you out. I wanted to ask you this. So you you gave there's so many obstacles and hurdles on top of of the leukemia. But You mentioned, you know, and then also I actually want to backtrack a little bit too, because you mentioned when I heard your story of, of, you know, sports and an athlete, what just kind of came out clearly is work ethic and personal ownership. And you could just see that all the way through as you're describing these symptoms and these things that others may, you know, seek help for, you know, you're saying, oh, I can do this better, or maybe it's me, or, you know, and then when you get the the overtraining, makes all the sense in the world that it's that because of your work ethic and how hard you push. And so you'd mentioned that that was instrumental later. So when I hear about your work ethic, and I think mindset, because you have a powerful mindset, once you got into the chemotherapy the vision, how important was your mindset uh, in getting through that and keeping peaceful and calm? Um, It was extremely important to me. Um, I remember growing up, my there's a story, and I forget um, who it was, but it was some professional athlete, and she was a, a famous tennis player. My parents, she'd gone a really bad accident. And basically, doctor said she would never play again. Well, while she was going through recovery, she basically sat there and envisioned herself playing again. And so, when you think about our mind, we don't even know. How, 
we're only utilizing a fraction of what it actually can do. The, the human mind is very incredible in all the different things and the facets that go into it. And so that really intrigued me. And even growing up, I always just kind of try to keep a very optimistic outlook and be positive with things. And um, I have had a lot of negative things happen, but then there's always a silver lining to it as well. And so going through what I did, I really wanted to keep that positive mindset. And it, I prayed a lot, but I also envisioned that healing light. And I had another a good friend of mine, an old horse trainer. She had got breast cancer when I was really little. And so that was my first experience with cancer. And she kind of said something similar to that. She just kind of pictured the healing. And so I did the same. And I don't know, it, it maybe it helps, but it was something that kept me at peace instead of thinking about the what ifs mm. or um, it really focused my mind on one thing. And I know my parents, mm. they're, I focused on coming back for basketball. And so when I first went to Denver, I thought I could beat this in one month <laughs> and uh, come back and finish the season. And so I was just, I was gung-ho. I was ready to do this, ready to come back and finish out my senior year. And so that basically when I was in Denver, I was training to come back. And that kept me sane. But I think it also helps me prepare my body for what was yet to come. And there was a week period where I don't remember because that was when it was probably my third week there. I got really sick and that was with the stomach infection and then the ulcer. I, there was days where I just slept and my mm-hmm. parents and brothers were all concerned. They, it's like I wouldn't wake up, I wouldn't eat, I wouldn't do anything. And so they were really concerned this was it. And I, I vaguely remember I'd wake up and just kind of go back to sleep and there was, I know this is off topic now, but it was when I really knew I, something was wrong was when I, before I got diagnosed with overtraining syndrome, I had slept for two days straight and there was days where I would do that. So for me, this was nothing out of the ordinary, but I kind of thought, okay, well, this is what my body needs. And they're over here really worried. And I'm just like, nope, my body just needs to rest. And we switched up a little, th- a few things. I stopped taking all the, like the opioids and all those different types of pain medications because it just wasn't making me better. And we switched to, um, Marinol, which was really helpful. And that instantly woke me up. And, but from there on, like my healing and my thought process, it was just always positive. Um, I think that's crucial. If you think something's going to go wrong, it probably will. And even if it, does don't like get discouraged and that was kind of my thing it's like okay well there's nothing I can do about this right now I just you got to go through yeah I think I'm a big proponent of of that of having a positive mindset because for one I think you can make yourself you can make things worse when you focus on things so try to focus on the things that I have control of Mm -hmm. and if there's obstacles and adversity then you you know process it and go okay now what you know how do we how do we how do we go forward and 
and I do think it's, I think the value of, of the, of being positive and being peaceful is huge. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it really helps with the healing. And this is, you know, I believe this. And, uh, and I think the other side of it is, I think you can definitely make things worse when you focus and worry and have anxiety and fears. So those are things that Mm-hmm. So what do you do with? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, and that's just like in normal everyday life. We're all guilty of it. We mm-hmm. we find something and we latch onto and we start to worry, and then that creates it's a, it's a chemical reaction within your body, and that's a lot of things too. Is I'm very in tune with my own body, and over the years I know things why they were bad because I would worry or be really extremely stressed out and I just wasn't in the right state of mind and so getting this diagnosis I knew I was like I have to change like this is not healthy for me and so Denver was kind of the pinnacle point of my whole treatment it was not only the beginning but it also out outlined the entire rest of my treatment as well if I started out with a negative attitude then I more than likely will continue with that. And so that's where I really focused on how I was praying and meditating and doing different things. And there are things that the doctor's like, you don't need to do that. It's like, yeah, I know I don't need to, but I'm going to. Mm -hmm. And I made a conscious effort uh, with cutting out sugar completely out of my diet. Granted, you can't cut it entirely out because it's found basically and all sorts of things, but just kind of more of like processed sugars. Yes. And when I would look at the menu, there'd be milkshakes, which I loved. I, I was a sugar fanatic before. I definitely had a little sugar addiction, I think, as some people do. It's It could be a weakness, like let's have a Diet Coke or yeah. Dr. Pepper. And I really focused on my diet. Um, what did you do specifically for your diet? I went, not necessarily in Denver, but I tried going vegetarian. I went vegetarian and I started eating more kind of organic and different things like that. Um, but I, to backtrack just a second, is we had a doctor that came in and down there that they kept rotating. And so I never had the same doctor twice. And so he came in and he and my mom got in an argument because he basically said, oh yeah, she can have as many Rice Krispie treats, oh, whatever she wants to eat, she can have. And my mom's like, no. And it wasn't like my mom was trying to punish me or anything. She had been through something similar. Her first husband died of pancreatic cancer when my brothers were um, one and I mm. think three months old. So just babies. And... She she swears by his diet trying to save him and the, the tumors were shrinking when they were doing the more vegetarian vegan process but then he was losing too much weight. He just he wasn't able to handle it as well as say I could. And it's all very dependent upon each person. So she had had this experience and she knew back then what in that was in the 80s that she, sugar really wasn't good for you and here's this doctor trying to tell her nope it's fine and she's like no like she can put good healthy nutritious things in her body that'll fuel her body to do good things versus feeding the cancer yes which like those processed not just processed foods but sugars 
they're so easily absorbed by cancer cells. It's you're just basically feeding the cancer to uh, multiply. And so that was one thing that was huge for me was changing my diet. So number one was mindset down to number two was a diet change. And my brother, I love him to death. He brought in a crock pot and he went into the little kitchen. He, you couldn't bring anything into the room and then take it out. So he had to do all, all my meal prep back in this little kitchen. And he was very adamant about keeping things sanitary, which even then people are so unsanitary and it's just, it makes your eyes all you're like, are you serious? Want to rip your hair out? But he would do meal prepping and he's a great cook. And so he kind of changed my palate a little bit because he has a strong gluten intolerance. So he cooked me all these different meals and tried different things. And, um, so that really helped me when I came home and when I came home, it was end of October, like I'd said. And so I didn't start my next round of treatment till middle of November, but I really focused on um, becoming vegetarian. I was more of a pescatarian, so I'd have a lot of fish and different things. Um, I tried not to do as much gluten, and so I really tried to cut back on gluten. I was very fresh vegetables, fruit, all those different types of things. You could look at my plate and it was a very colorful rainbow. And so, and I enjoyed cooking. I, my mom would help, but I would just, I mainly just cooked all my meals. I, I don't mind it at all. And then we ended up looking into becoming vegan. So we, we dealt with that. And so I did that for a while and I felt great. And, uh, to this day, I still do it. I'm not as much of a vegan. I'm more kind of like a vegetarian, but I still indulge on the meats on occasion and so you can't and even when I was going through it I didn't completely it was very Just being conscious I think of what you're putting in and how much is is yeah huge yeah it wasn't like I was eating every day it was maybe like a once a month treat or yeah. on, on occasion but sugar was not at all and even today I <laughs> my fiance loves crumble cookie and so he, he's like, why can't we go to crumble cookie? It's like, well, you can, but I just, it just, I eat one bite of the cookie. And I'm like, that's just too much for me. And mm-hmm. not my body's trained to that point where I just, certain things don't taste as good yep. and healthier things end up tasting better to me. My dad jokes, he's like, how can you eat that rabbit food? And I bring him lunches to work on occasion. And Sometimes it involves some salad, and I'm like, I just do. I love it, and so... Have you been to Well-Paired in town? Well-Paired, yes. In uh, the... I love Well-Paired. We're there all the time. Yep, and my te- one of my teammates, we would go there before every home game. Yep. <laughs> Our last year at Rocky, and we'd have the little health shots and take mm-hmm. one of those, and yep, I yep. like Well-Paired. I get the big gallon juice with it, yep. so I do that two or three times a week and then we juice here at home mm-hmm. so from the time we get diagnosis juicing became a huge aspect of what we do and yep. anywhere from 60 to 90 ounces a day and so i think um being mindful of what you put in your body is huge and we were already mindful before and we're given a lot of direction mm-hmm. other than when they said okay bring in what you're doing and already did you know already had a really balanced diet and as organic as possible and as lean as possible. And mm-hmm. I was very minimal on sugars 
you know, rarely ever, you mm-hmm. know, no sodas, no, you know, those kind of things were just things I hadn't done for a decade and mm-hmm. or more. And so I didn't have a lot of things I had to change, but we did add the juicing in. And when they looked at the list, they're like, oh, that's great. That's great. Keep doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then we, you know, added, added that in as well. And I think it's an important part of the recovery process is your mind, the way you think and what you put in your body. Those are the things as a, as a patient you have control over. A lot of things you don't, mm-hmm. but those are things you do. Who you surround yourself with, the, you know, the kind of atmosphere you're in, what you're listening to, what's going in. All those things I think are huge. So I agree with you when I hear you saying those things. I'm like, yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. And I think those are very valuable. And some people are, are not aware of, of that. And I think it's one of the things you can advocate for yourself mm-hmm. for sure well and i think some people too it's it's easy to buy certain things it becomes more work when you have to try to control your diet or you try to eliminate certain things so take like chips or even just certain foods um i know for example he, my fiance loves jalapenos and he loves them in the jar well mm-hmm. we'll go to the store and he just kind of rolls his eyes at me sometimes because I'll be looking at the ingredients and there's certain things in it that I'm just like, nope, we're not having that. Yeah. And we're not putting that junk in our body. It's like, there, I for one, it's a big word. And yeah. if you start looking up certain types of things, it's, it's not good for you at all. And so trying to be more conscious of different types of things. And if you aren't able to afford organic, then just maybe get into the habit of washing your vegetables more to wash off pesticides or different things like that. Um, There's ways to be able to manage. It's just, it is, you have to either go all in or not at all. And if you have to make a choice, say like bananas, you know, if you can't go organic on certain, if you have to make choices, well, the banana with that big peel, maybe that go that way and and go organic with say an apple, you know, and if you have to make those, those choices, if you can't go fully, I agree with that. And then also too, like I ended up seeing, um, a naturopathic doctor and there's actually one at the Billings clinic who specializes in oncology and she hands you a list and is like, okay, this is a list of things that you definitely should buy organic. And then these are the things you shouldn't. And basically just certain things are more susceptible to the pesticides. I don't know the entire side science behind it, but there's, it makes logical sense. But yeah, just, I think one is the mindset, two is food. You, we are what you eat. And so just, you feel your body. If you don't have good food, things to fuel it by it's not going to do yeah. what it needs to do to heal and the comfort aspect of oh have this or have sometimes i think people go well this is a treat mm-hmm. and this is comfort and and you know there are times for that mm-hmm. but when that becomes you know consistent it can be detrimental because you want to put things in your body that will help fight yep yeah. and you don't want things that would be negative on the other side yeah Yeah. it's and you can think uh, i know you we talked about this where you'd go up into do your transfusions and there'd be people up there who had burger king or taco bell and you're like yeah those they are big sodas yeah 30 some ounce yep sugar waters and you're like no yeah (laughs) ah that just is not healthy like you think about what you're putting in your body that's a poison 
that's also poison. I remember in sixth grade, we learned all the uses of Coca-Cola. And one Mm. of them is it can dissolve a T-bone steak in like a week. (laughs) Think of what it can do to the inside of your body. Like, Have you ever seen the the McDonald's where they'll show like a Big Mac and fries and then they'll show it a week later and then a year later and then seven years later and it looks the same yep and you're like oh my goodness yeah or like a french fry if you've yeah. ever lost a french fry under your seat oh you can find yeah. it a year later and it's still the same it might yes. be a little hard but no insects are no nope. are interested in it nope yeah. so i think that's like a big thing is was um my diet and that helped um definitely fuel me through that and then also too just trying water I, that was a big mm-hmm. one. So that was diet as well. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I drink tons of water and I think that's that's vital. Mm-hmm. And I, I had done that, you know, before. So that was something I just continued. Mm-hmm. But for those, you know, when I see people with a big 32 ounce, I'm like, that would be a perfect time to have 32 ounces of yeah. water. <laughs> and if it doesn't taste, you're like, oh, it's so bland. It's like, well, maybe try a tea. Green tea is good. Mm-hmm. High in antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going... If you truly want to fight for your life, you do the research. Yeah. You you find ways, yeah. and if you, in the end it, does, it doesn't work out, it's like, well, hey, I tried it all, and yeah. you work hard. But um, one thing I did that was kind of interesting and kind of, I guess, some people would be like, oh, no, I'm never going to do that, was fasting. Yeah. And I didn't do it my well, – my first three treatments I did it my last two and we'd done a lot of different research kind of my mom was constantly (laughs) if she's someone to talk to it's her because she's done hours upon hours of research on different things and my brothers did it as well and they were the ones who brought up fasting and so for when I did my chemo treatments it would be, I'd go in for two hours in the morning, two hours at night, three times a week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So I'd fast Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Wednesday night I'd have like a little tiny snack and then I could eat Thursday, Friday. It was tough, especially when you sit at home all day mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you are watching TV shows and people are cooking. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like yeah. all those different things are happening. But my mom did it with me as well, so that was kind of nice. But the interesting thing about it and some of the research that honestly goes along with it is cancer cells, you wouldn't think, but they're really weak cells. And so our bodies naturally go into uh, survival mode. When it doesn't Mm -hmm. think it's going to get, it's very um, prehistoric, but our body, the healthy cells, protect themselves. And so they go into a protective mode and kind of shield themselves and save them for uh, down the road when they might be needed. And then cancer cells do not have this capability. So the idea behind fasting is your body shuts down, kind of goes into hibernation like a bear, Mm -hmm. and then cancer cells are kind of just... Just picture them as little darts going around, like trying to find something to latch onto for fuel, and they end up dying off quicker. And so I did that during my chemo because who's more susceptible? The cancer cells. Mm. And your healthy cells are less uh, affected, theoretically, you'd think. And I actually think they were. Because when I 
would go through my treatments prior to fasting. I um, would notice like my eyes. I couldn't open my eyes. That was one of my really big side effects. And this was before the bleeding. Um, I just could, it felt like I had shards of glass in my eyes. So I, whether they're open or closed, that was really painful. Obviously, my hair, uh, how sensitive my head would be. And then um, I'd get sores in my mouth and different things like that. Well, when I started fasting, a lot of those symptoms went away. I didn't have any problems with my head hurting. I didn't get the headaches. Headaches were a really big thing. And then my eyes, it just, they didn't hurt anymore. So that was kind of interesting. Um, the whole idea of fasting and granted it's not for everyone, but that was another thing is because we did a lot of different research. And I think that's the, the third component is just kind of researching and understanding what you're going through and I know I've talked with people before where they say oh I don't want to know anything about it and it's like okay well are you sure you don't want to because knowledge is power and having the knowledge can help you fight different things it's just like with the diet well if someone didn't know that drinking a pop was bad for them then yeah they would. I do get the the uh, part of be, being overwhelmed where people, so I understand that's sometimes, you know, one of the elements of it mm-hmm. that they're like, I don't want to know anything. In other words, it's like, I, I can't take more information. And what happened for us right away was there was, you know, a lot of people that would mean well and call Mm-hmm. And they would try to or send you links to something that they had never looked at. They yeah. saw a headline and and they, you know, so they would send you something and they hadn't researched it themselves. So it wasn't something they were just trying to be helpful and, and it would be this just too much. And so quickly we just, you know, worked it out with my wife and I that it would go through other sources. If it was anything yeah. valid, then we would look because we had done a ton of, you know, research and 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 lived a certain way that the, we had a good knowledge base going in. We only we were lucky in, in the aspect that we only had really one path forward. Mm-hmm. So because we had one path forward, we didn't have, you know, a lot of decision making. You know, if there was alternate treatments and there was just kind of one path. So so for us, we didn't, you know, we didn't have to, to do that type of research. You know, for me, what I needed was straightforward. But um, also had family members mm-hmm. that had studied for years. My brother-in-law had studied cancer because he, he would give me the numbers mm-hmm. and say, you know, one day someone in our family is going to have cancer. So we need to know so we don't get caught and then have to go do it. <laughs> so we talked about this like 10 years ago or eight years ago. And then you know, and then finally when it, when when that time came, I was like, oh, well, it's me. Yeah. <laughs> and, I'm the, and, the statistic. Yeah. So we had people that there was, you know. And, and we had some good resources to go. Um, and even with that, I did channel some of the information through people so you didn't have to weed through, mm-hmm. you know, that. So I do understand that, that sometimes people are, are, you know, worried about that. And so I think it is valuable to, like for the fasting, you know, I fasted in my life, you know, you know for, for years. That's been something that I've, I've done, but I never thought about it through chemo or through that it just didn't so hearing that from you is one of those things that i can go oh okay here's one more possible tool that i can use mm-hmm. and and you know what i i do think is there's certain things work for certain people and certain for others and mm-hmm. and if you're able to 
to you know listen and and you can find some things that are are helpful because you know through you know through this time there's things that we've stumbled on and then I hear you know people will say yeah I, I did this for this reason I'm like oh I was doing that and I hadn't researched it and it has been helpful and so uh, I, I do think knowledge is power I do well and I agree with you there and that it can be very overwhelming and luckily for me like I had my parents and my yeah. brothers so I did I had that basically the siphon of all the information and even too when you're going through it it can be overwhelming because everyone starts reaching out because they're scared they're Mm -hmm. scared as much as you are it's just a different type of scared they're more scared that they're going to lose you versus where you're scared you're like well this is my life yes and so um it's all each person's different i agree uh long along the lines as like fasting it's probably not for everyone yeah. it's but very it could be, for it, could be. Yep. it could be for someone it could be for you it's could be. It, everyone knows their body and knows their limitations for me i know i have a high pain threshold i know i i can be very mentally strong but i can also be very mentally weak it just depends on that day and my will and so it, there's all different factors that play into it there's no concrete thing that's going to go there's no set equation that this is how you're it's going to go it's going to be fine just like with platelets they might not affect you but they affect me and so with knowledge i my suggestion too is take everything you hear with a grain of salt yes and there's always different sources there's different opinions and views it's just kind of like with politics there's two different sides so you you can hear one news station and hear one complete side and hear another and you're like okay well you guys just totally are the exact polar opposites and that's where you need to take information and be able to make your own decisions with that and that's where knowledge is power the more you know the more you understand because just looking at one view you're you don't always know what the other side yep. is doing. Yep. And so we've looked at research across and, but yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think it. it's nice when you have, you know, again, we had, we had some filters because instantly people are bombarding you with, you know, even they mean well, you know, and, or if you ask them a few questions, sometimes they will have a cancer story, but it'll be something so, you know, a different type of cancer that would, would not be relatable. And, mm-hmm. and so, uh, I've, I kind of learned how to how to avoid certain conversations while still getting that you know information that yeah. was 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 you know um, good, but I think that it's important. Uh, I mean, I do. It's funny as I've been on this journey. Some people it surprised me that the, how many different ways people. Um, some people are very offended by the fact that I say I fight. And, and I, when I first saw that, I was like, that's, I had no idea that offended people. And, I guess I didn't either. And so I was like, oh. And so it, it kind of hit me hard the first time because I was like, I've been offending people. I didn't even know. But then, you know, I realized that goes both ways of going, I'm going to respect their journey and, and allow it to be. But I'm also going to, I'm going to, I'm going to attack this journey the way that's, you know, best for, for me and for my family. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know unashamedly fighting you know in, in the way i do and i think sometimes it's just terminology too i think they fight in a different way by you know whatever whatever is you know appropriate for their journey but i'm a big proponent of of all of these things i think they're they're very valuable mm-hmm. so what um 
how was how was the diagnosis? How did it affect your mom, your dad, your brothers? What was their what was the impact on it, them? And it was really tough on them all. You could just tell. And I basically my mom because she's retired. She was home with me every day, so she was my caretaker. And there was days I was like, Mom, just relax. And she almost became OCD with just how worried she was with like germs and different things. Like she wouldn't leave the house with me. Mm. And which I appreciate like God love her, the best woman ever for doing all that. Like she was, she's very selfless and has the greatest heart. And my dad, he wanted to be home. He still to this day, my team wore battling for Benata wristbands. Hasn't taken it off. And mm. my brothers, too, they just, they dropped everything and were around. So I was surrounded by amazing people. And my aunts, too. Like, my aunts, uncles, extended family, my uncle, <laughs> and all of them. All of them are incredible. And I didn't get to see them all through my journey just because we tried to keep distance. Because you never know if they've been around someone sick. Yep. And so we, we, my mom really kept me in this little Quarantine bubble. <laughs> yes, I was in this little bubble the whole time, which is fine. And um but it, yeah, they were all amazing, but the one really cool thing and not saying that any one of them anyone else's what they did for me wasn't as great, but my one uncle's a ESPN commentator and I don't know if you know who Jimmy V is, but he mm-hmm. was during Jimmy V week, he would do these different, um, over the years he had done it. But then when I became diagnosed, he did a story about me um, and I still, I, I try to watch him, but I, it's, I always have to go on my own time and it's just go privately. I can't watch him with other people, but he did a Jimmy V thing on me and it was just unique. Just kind of seeing the outpour of people and the support and the added prayers but just kind of just knowing that people love me and they all took it hard mm-hmm. and for me it's just I'm the type of person that just kind of doesn't want to look back or think about something bad I'm very empathetic but for whatever reason I just couldn't see it and so I know people were more affected than I probably let on to I just tried to be that positive person so that they weren't scared either, but they yeah. were very, all of them yeah. were extremely scared. And to this day, they still are just, they're still on edge, but you just kind of got to take a breath and go with it because it's just like we had spoke on earlier. Stress is one of those yeah. things that really stress and just worrying. It's, it's not healthy at all. So well, one of the gifts of, of cancer for me, and, and I say that often there has been gifts that have come with it, which, um, again, I don't, when I, I'm careful when I say that, that's, for me it is. I don't I know what you're saying. I don't want to say for others, but there are things you find, like, well, you mentioned earlier, you said a silver lining. Yep. What are some of the silver linings that, that um, you have found in this journey? Well, for one, my fiance, my future husband, was one. Uh, met him shortly after I got out of treatment, and it, I'm not trying to be, self-centered or just kind of vain when I think about hair but I Mm. had hair and then when I met him I was had short boy hair Mm. so I'd always hid behind my hair I was always kind of shy with it and so going out and trying to meet boys I pictured myself as a ticking time bomb 
And I was like, who's ever going to want me? I had to get my eggs harvested, like I'd mentioned, because who knew when, if my cancer would ever come back or if I had to go for a transplant. Mm. Because if, um, what people don't understand and probably don't think about when they go in there, I'm, I was 24 when I was diagnosed. I had a point zero zero nine chance of ever getting the type of cancer I did at my age. Mm. So the odds were very small and against me. So you don't think about your fertility. You don't think about having a family. Well, that was part of it. But then people my age were starting to get married. They're finding their significant other starting to kind of settle down. And for me, it was very scary because I'm like, well, who I, who's going to want me? And so going back into the world, um, that was kind of scary. But I silver lining was I found God led me to an amazing guy who loved me for everything, um, you, everything I've gone through. And interesting enough, his uncle, which he had never met, his mom's brother died of a, the same cancer I did when mm. he was 19. And so it was kind of interesting, the stories and how they intertwined and um, meeting his family and kind of our cancer journeys and the opposites they were. But um, And then the other silver lining was I ended up saving a woman's life. I have no idea who this woman is, but she needed a transplant. And when I was in uh, Denver, they... The thought was I might need a transplant. So people went on this huge campaign and they did a bone marrow drive at Rocky and they did another at MSUB. But the one at Rocky was really unique. Um, a lot of people came and donated blood, uh, bone marrow or they got tested. They didn't yeah. donate the bone marrow, but yep. they got tested. To be the match. To be the match, yep. yes. Yep. And people had all these um, pre- conceptions of what they had to go do they thought they were gonna have to get picked. an arm lopped off yeah or they were thinking they were gonna have to get like blood drawn and yeah. different things i'm like no it's as yeah. easy as just literally yes. going and swabbing your dna and so that having that not getting poked all the time yep. it really encouraged people but also putting a face to it yep. and it a lot of people came and they thought they were all excited. They were hoping they were going to be my match. And I was really mm-hmm. <laughs> people I didn't, hadn't talked for to in years and yes. long lost family. And many ways, like the odds of that actually happening, you know, yeah. I, even my brothers want, went to go get tested, but they, they would be the least likely, which is so interesting to find. It's a complete stranger who ends mm. up being the match for you which is kind of poetic and unique and kind of just shows. But this kid went thinking he was going to be the match for me, and he ended up being the match for a woman, I think, in Minnesota. And she had a family and different things, and he ended up saving her life because he went in to do a transplant. And it worked, and to this day, I think they're still in uh, contact, but I'm not sure exactly, but... I knew that, and then um, just kind of my journey, how everything led me to where you don't think about it in the moment. You're like, oh, well, this is crappy. This is happening to me, but everything leads up to something, and after I left MSUB, I was devastated and went to Rocky, and I was like, okay, it's a new start. 
didn't really see where it was going to lead me, but it led me to uh, meeting some people and who were affected by cancer. Aaron's Hope Project, which I had spoken with you about, mm-hmm. and they had lost a daughter at a young age due to cancer. And from there, they created Aaron's Hope Project and have really uh, touched a lot of different people's lives who have been affected by cancer and more in our state. So it's kind of closer to home, which is really unique. But I probably would never have got met them if I had never transferred to Rocky. Yep. Um, just because they were friends of a teammate. And then when... I was going through treatment at home. Our <laughs> it's silly, but one of our dogs got out of the yard, and he's this little tiny Yorkie, and my mom's little child. <laughs> he's like five pounds, but he got out of the yard, and my old sixth grade teacher, who lived not too far away, brought him home, and she had gone through cancer as well. I remember when I was in sixth grade, and. She kind of was just talking to me and then she let me know of a friend of mine who I'd gone to high school with and she and I really never conversed very much, but um, just were kind of common acquaintances, especially when you go to a school of like 2,000 kids (laughs) at -hmm. Billing Senior. So you know who she was, but you never really had a conversation. She let me know that she was going through cervical cancer and she wasn't really one of those people who was open about it. And kind of just had things um, a little tough, but I messaged her and we, she ended up being a really great friend. And uh, I don't know what else I'd do without her because she's been a great cancer sister for me. Someone who is going through something similar and we were, we talked all the time and still do. And she, well, let me backtrack a second. So she, when I, with the Aaron's Hope Project, they had contacted me saying, we'd like to send you on a trip and you get to decide where you want to go and different things. And I said, you know what? I have everything I need. Like I've been very blessed with, um, as far as traveling and experiencing the world with my parents have just been very fortunate with that. And so I said, you know, there's one other girl I know who could use it more than I would. And so she ended up, I gave her contact information. I let her know that, um, my friend, that this woman would be contacting her and she was appreciative and she ended up being able to go to Hawaii and with some family and friends. And it was just unique. And I saw a video about it back in December and it just made me really tear up and it it's unique it's you don't know how you're going to affect someone and my cancer journey has affected more people than I know and maybe there's people I don't even know it's affected or maybe there's things that I haven't done yet that my my experiences my journey um, might help someone down the line but those were kind of the silver linings that are very visible right now Um, that's great it's amazing when you enter the the cancer tribe and that was the thing that you know i realized once once you get that diagnosis that there is this whole group of people that now you belong to in a different way and you're connected in a different way and so that's that's been uh one of the one of the gifts or silver linings for me is is the is the tribe that i'm 
I now get to be a part of and get mm-hmm. to travel through this with. And uh, yeah, I've been been very blessed with the nurses, the doctors. I mean, there's so many beautiful things that we've been able to experience in in the you know here at Billings Clinic. They've been just fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the nurses we've become well acquainted because we've oh, yeah. had like. 18 rounds of chemo, so we're in like the 120-some infusions, and that's not even counting all the other uh, other things. And so we have a extended family through the nurses and, yeah. and through the physicians there. So it's been it's been a really beautiful um, journey with with that of meeting new people and and um, one of the things you know through this I've, I've met um, a friend of mine now Kay, and she she sat down and talked to me and she. She said that, you know, every day, you know, she goes, I think it's very important every day to find three things you're grateful for. So because of that, I always ask when someone sits down with me, what are three things that you're grateful for that have that have happened because of this journey? So for one, I just want to, I'm grateful for God being in my life and um, all the blessings he's kind of just bestowed on me. And my family would be one for sure. And my health, of course. You can't not not be grateful for good health um, in this moment because I am. I'm cancer-free and I'm living a, a great life. And I've had a lot of different things. I'm just very appreciative for all everything that I have. And I am grateful for all the experiences I have gone through because I think they've really shaped me and prepared me for um just the future and definitely my cancer journey has shaped me and really opened my eyes to a lot of things so well is there any anything else that you would you would uh you'd like to share or anything you would like to any other wisdom you'd like to drop on me before (laughs) before we wrap up i'm not sure i'm full of wisdom (laughs) i'm full of stories but (laughs) You have such wisdom. and, and I probably talked your guys' ear off. It's probably been way too long. Oh, this has been fantastic. And I'm, I'm thankful to be able to walk through the, your journey and hear it from you. And mm-hmm. it's I think it has, a great, it has great value to me and I know it will to others. And from what I've seen and read in you know publications, you've had an impact on a lot of people. And I have no doubt that that will continue. And, and um, I'm thankful and grateful for you and for you sitting down. So... Thank you, and uh, I think this will be a a good place to uh, land the plane. Sounds good. All right, thanks for coming. (laughs) Thank you. You bet.